Putting on a musical is a big undertaking. Big budgets, big casts, and directing a musical is an equally big task. Where would you start? How do you make the show a success? Is directing a musical the same as directing a play? I'm Christopher King, and on today's episode, we talk with Sarah Rogers, one of Vancouver's busiest and most sought-after directors. We ask her about her process, her directing philosophy, and much more from the pit. Sarah Rogers is a director, actor, and educator. She has directed musicals and plays at almost every theatre company in Vancouver, including Gateway Theatre, Theatre Under the Stars, United Players, and Pacific Theatre, just to name a few. Her next show is with the Arts Club Theatre in their production of The Audience, which opens January 26th at the Stanley Theatre. She holds an MFA in directing from the University of British Columbia, is a Jesse Richardson Theatre Award winner, and has directed everything from classics to Ibsen to modern Canadian plays. No matter what she has done, her aesthetic and vision come through with great success. Today, I welcome my colleague and friend, Sarah Rogers. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Lovely to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Sarah Rogers on both sides of the table. I've had the pleasure of acting in some of her shows, and as music director, we've been on the same production team numerous times. Together, we've done the last six shows at Theatre Under the Stars, uh, most recently West Side Story this past summer. Do you remember the first musical you directed? The very first musical I directed would be my thesis project, and that was Oh, What a Lovely War by Joan Littlewood. Um, Now, many people would really probably say that that was a play with music, Mm. but a great deal of music and a lot of singing and dancing. So that was my thesis. And then my first professional directing project was for Simon Johnston out at Gateway Theatre. And I want to say it was Emily of New Moon, which was an incredibly challenging piece. And when Simon called me in and made this terrific offer, Mm. I said to him, I've never directed a big musical. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, I just came to see Oh, What a Lovely War. And I think that was a big musical. (laughs) (laughs) Not intended, but it was a musical. That's amazing. So how did you find that experience working on the first musical? That must have been a different experience than you've had recently. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, it's, it's like my early days when I was Mm. so green. Um, I think, and I, and I have continued to do the same thing, which is always approach the work uh, from the play first, from the script first, Mm. uh, the story. And uh, you know, what, what is the story about? This was a crazy piece to do as my first show, because it was there are th- there are actually three novels to right. Emily of New Moon, and um, the playwright fell in love with all of them, and so kind of amalgamated them into mm. this two-hour piece. So it was quite epic and right. <laughs> quite challenging, but right. I had a great time using my imagination, uh, great fun with the concept, and um, worked with 
um, Shelley Stewart Hunt, of course, yeah. great choreographer who we know well and have done lots with. And so she was quite a genius. One of the fun things we had is we had a big skating scene mm. and uh, I wanted to really look like skating and I wanted to really explore the physicality of ice skating right. on the stage. Right. And uh, we had uh, a lovely costume designer that helped us design these shoes that actually looked like they had blades on them. Amazing. Um, so, you know. Tricks, 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 of the tricks and magic of theater. <laughs> um, like I mentioned in the, in the opening, um, that you're quite sought after people, uh, ask you to do projects all the oh, time. You, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how do you decide which projects you want to take? Is there any rules of thumb that you go by? Oh, well, that's a great question. I have to love the story and the script. I, I love I, you know, writing is everything. Mm. I'm sure for you too, music is everything. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that I can be invested in it. Um, and frankly, you know, as time goes on, I just want to be interested. Right, so right. if there's something that I read that I just sure. go, you know, I just don't think this will hold my attention. Mm -hmm. I guess it could be quite a slog <laughs> right? if you're not. If it's, it's like, you know, this is just a bit too boring. I just don't think I can, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I can live with this for, you know, right. six months. Of course. Um, so I have to love a piece. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about in theater as a director about finding the beauty. Mm. And I've really held on to that, which is find the beauty in the piece. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a happy piece or a beautiful piece. It can be edgy. Uh, it can be threatening. It can be challenging. It can be dark. Mm. But there's beauty in it, um, like Angels in America. Right. You know, has a great has a great script. Uh, so it's it's kind of for me about finding that hook in. Mm. And once I find that hook in, or I think, oh yeah, this this is a piece that will ignite me and my imagination, and I can get excited about. And then you know firsthand what mm -hmm. that's like uh, once I once I get into that fervored state <laughs> uh, and passion. Then it's such a joy for everybody, for right. actors and the singers and my team. Um, and then I think you will always have a much better chance of creating um, an exciting piece of art right. when you have that passion and you really believe in the project. One of the things that intrigued me uh, uh, that I wanted to ask you was when, and it may be a broader question, but how do you find the difference between doing a play as opposed to a musical like when you're researching a musical, does it, does it differ it from do a play? It does differ. Right. Yes, it does. It differs greatly in terms of music mm. and lyrics. So songs. Right. Uh, when you have a play, um, you, of course, you have the text. You have the text and then you have the period and the setting of it. Um, I love to do a lot of background. Mm -hmm. I love to read a lot of books and I love to uh, delve into the the world, whether it's social, pol political, you know, what, whatever that period is. I love to immerse myself in it. So when you approach a play, you have the script and you have the dialogue and that's going to inform you of the journey and it's going to give you insight into the characters. And there's going to be a rhythm as well to good scripts and good writers. So they will write 
economically. For example, when I work with Pinter, Pinter is almost like a jazz musician hmm. in that you will have very tightly back and forth text that will go back and it will be in a very specific rhythm. Mm. And then all of a sudden you will get a jazz solo. Mm. Like all of a sudden you'll just get a monologue and they're rare in Pinter. Mm. And so when they happen, it's, it, it, it literally feels like to me, it feels like you suddenly get this jazz solo. It's like wow. all of a sudden Pinter has given one of the players a solo. Amazing. So even when I approach a script, I can talk about it in musical terms mm. because I, I still believe that there is a rhythm and there are words or notes. What's beautiful about working with musical is you get to go to a further level. Mm. You go to almost the, what I would call the fourth level uh, in theater. In Shakespeare, when characters fall in love, when... Um, somebody gets murdered, uh, when something huge occurs, an event occurs, that character will often suddenly speak in verse. So they will rhyme. They will start speaking in an iambic pentameter. They will have a rhyming couplet. And it takes them out of that everyday prose speech. It's because they're in a heightened state. Mm. Musicals give us this as well. When a character falls in love, for example, in a musical, suddenly they sing. Mm -hmm. So they move to this fourth level. So that informs me greatly as a director right there, as I work my way through. So it, it isn't like, oh, here is this piece and we've got these 20 songs to work on. Right. And now let's, you know, let's, let's just do this solo work. As the director, I have to, and it's a great joy, look at where those songs are placed and why. Why is the character at a point in this scene where all he or she can do is sing? Mm. The next level that I love about a musical, and this is really where I lean on my musical director greatly, mm -hmm. is not only... Am I looking technically at when are they singing and why? Mm -hmm. What are they singing about? How is that furthering uh, their journey? Now, all of that is still mostly in lyrics. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I can do that. What I love, and this is something that, Chris, uh, you're so great at and, uh, you know, always inform me of, mm -hmm is musically what's happening. Musically, what is the composer telling us mm -hmm. about the journey, about the character? Are we getting repetition in the music? Are we getting uh, themes that are coming back? Are we getting a variation on a theme? Mm -hmm. are, we, are we taking some notes and decomposing them? Is mm -hmm. that the right word? Deconstructing, <laughs> Deconstructing, yeah. thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Deconstructing them so that there's a shift um, and... We found that greatly in West Side Story. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I will always um, sit down with my musical director and go through the entire script and talk about those moments, have he or she share that with me, give me that information, because mm -hmm. that's great character work and it changes the way I direct and stage things as mm -hmm. well to have that information. So I love it because musicals, it's almost like it, they're giving you even more clues. Mm -hmm. Right.
Tell me a little bit about turning straight plays into musicals. Like right. the Duchess, for instance. Oh, yes. saw, you know, where, yeah. Where I remember one of the you. first things you told told me because yeah. I saw it at the Telus when you had mm-hmm. done it at UBC. Uh, you're like, I've turned it into a musical. <laughs> 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 um, so obviously, you like that rhythm. But tell me a bit about that process. Yes, thank you. Uh, oh, I love that piece. Um, so this is uh, Linda Griffith's play, and uh, a brilliant uh, Canadian writer. Uh, she was based in Toronto for, for many years, and uh, sadly, she passed away. Linda is known, too, for her very witty, very clever, very dark writing, unusual pieces, uh, moody, funny, absurd. I would almost call her an absurdist playwright. So this was a piece about Wallace Simpson, but it was like no other... <laughs> Like it was not a BBC drama. It was like no other uh, um, rendition of, of of a British work. Um, you know, it was. It, I was worried that it would actually would offend people because mm. it was quite naughty, quite sexy, very irreverent, edgy, and she had two versions of it. First of all. So she, I, I read the play and I certainly felt when I read it that it was incomplete. I thought, oh, I love it. There's some amazing ideas in this. There's some incredible scenes, but it didn't feel like it had a clear journey. And it felt like it had quite a lot of ideas in it. So I was thrilled thinking, oh, great. She's got a, a revised edition. Fantastic. She'd been to PTC. She had done a two-week workshop. And I thought, well, lovely. Yes, please send me that, the updated script. So she sent me the updated script. To my great surprise, it was a completely different play. Oh, really? <laughs> it was a completely so different play. And one of her main themes, which were these fairy creatures in her first version, were gone. Mm. And they were replaced with a high society chorus. I love the high society chorus. Mm -hmm. But there were some other things about the first play that I liked better. Mm. And there were scenes that I thought were more economically written that had some nice buttons, a joke at the end of the scene, which I really liked. So then I was facing a great dilemma. Well, Mm. which one do I do? So I wrote to her and said, how do you feel about doing some dramaturgy together? And I have some ideas because there's things I love about the first one, things I love about Mm -hmm. (laughs) your most recent one. And bless her, she actually wrote back and said, the Duchess has taken years off my life. I'm not going to spend any more time doing any more writing on it. Do what you want. Wow. Carte blanche. (laughs) Carte blanche. Do what you want with it. Great. So... God bless her. I did a cut and paste job. Mm. I literally took, you know, <laughs> I, lit- I literally, in a very old-fashioned way, mm. literally took full printed paper copies of each of these editions. And I'm not kidding, Chris King, because I'm so old school. <laughs> I got my scissors out and I cut and pasted it. Her dear scripts. Oh, my God. And as I I got further into it and deeper into it, I started thinking, you know, I don't 
think she probably envisioned that I would cut it down this much and take like one joke or one line from here and move it over here. You know, she's probably thinking I'm going to take an entire scene mm-hmm. as she has written it and go, okay, well, I like scene seven from this. Right. Um, so I started to get nervous. Mm-hmm. One of the characters from the high society was Noel Coward. And I happen to love Noel Coward's music mm-hmm. because Noel Coward wrote quite a lot of songs, of course, and very witty lyrics. Um, and the music is beautiful. And so I just suddenly got this idea where I thought, well, Noel Coward is the MC of the piece. Mm. Wouldn't it be great to start the show off with a song? And just started there where I thought, oh, we'll just have him at a piano and he can do an opening song. On a closing song. And maybe he could play the piano during the transitions. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe we could have a few more songs inside the piece. And uh, lucky for me, this very talented actor out at UBC happened to be a very charming, a great lookalike for Noel Coward and uh, could sing and play the piano. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were lucky. We were very, I mean, I was just so blessed. And, and I'm sure you feel like this, but there's certain shows where I feel like the theater gods just sprinkle some fairy dust mm-hmm. over me and that project. Right. And that was one of them. That was one of them where the stars lined up for me because this fellow was so talented. And I just, again, got so excited and mm-hmm. started listening to all this, these Noel Coward songs and suddenly felt like, oh, this would work perfectly for this transition and this would work perfectly for this transition. And then what happens, and it's almost like I started to feel a little bit like a composer because I'm choosing lyrics that have a wryness mm. and make a little statement about the scene that we've just watched or where we're going. Right. And as you know, again, yeah. great musicals take that kind of mm-hmm. care and have that kind of thoughtfulness. Of so course. that's something I have learned uh, over the years from working on musicals. Great. And I was actually able to do this myself and, um, and feel very clever <laughs> about all the funny <laughs> moments that I created <laughs> uh, and that supported the piece. Right. Now, I never, ever imagined that Linda Griffiths would come and see the show. Because she's got, at that time, had a very busy career in Toronto. And uh, this was obviously a student production out at UBC. Well, the day before opening, I got uh, an email from Jerry Wasserman saying with great excitement what an honor it was going to be and how thrilled he was to share with me that Linda Griffith's playwright was getting on a plane and was going to be there for opening. And I thought we would be shut down. (laughs) I actually thought she's going to be horrified. (laughs) I have rewritten this text, moved everything around in bits and pieces, and I've Turned it into a musical. Well, thank goodness she loved it. She (laughs) absolutely loved it. And she was there, by the way, with her date, Daniel McIver, great Canadian playwright. (laughs) I think that that was opening night and I was there too, I think. And I think I remember trying to get your attention (laughs) and I remember you being fairly nervous. 
<laughs> I think this I think paralytic. I was I, I think paralytic and abstracted. I probably did. I probably couldn't hold a conversation mm. because uh, I was a wreck, and all I could, uh, you know, it's like when you sit in a theater and you're trying to watch a show, but it's like your third eye is working, and yeah. all I can do and watch with the eyes at the back of my head is Linda and Daniel MacGyver who are in the royal seats, you know, at the Dallas Theater, the royal box there on that second level. And all I'm thinking is, are they, are they laughing? Have they smiled yet? Have they laughed? Has she she thrown her program down? Uh, and that, that's the unfortunate thing or the fortunate thing about the TELUS is that I know, and I think I could see you from where we were sitting, to be honest, because you, it's in that sort of yes, rusty yes. stage. You can, so, you can actually it, stare at the I people like across it's, the way. It's the play within the play. <laughs> it is. It is. You can... <laughs> what are they thinking over there? Um, I'm glad she liked it. It was a great piece. I, I loved it too. And I'm glad the music really did hold it together in a lovely way. Um, and I remember thinking, well, you know, it's funny how it must have worked out because if it was the original script... These would have been fairy characters. That's right. And you wouldn't have had an old coward. That's right. And so it's kind of serendipitous. It, it's it's uh, amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when we revived it and we went to the Colch and Ruby Slippers and uh, the great, beautiful Diane Brown was playing Wallace, uh, she said to me, do you know, Noel Coward has all these songs I think Wallace should have a song. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we did. Amazing. And so we added a song in uh, for Wallace, and she had this terrific solo uh, mm. that was just fantastic. That's in, great. in her scene with Hitler. So she sang to Hitler. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm glad it, it had a lovely life of its own. So it, it, was, uh, it was a great production. Do you know, Chris, there was one other show that I took um, that I'm particularly thrilled about, one of my favorite pieces. Um, favorite piece that I put a spin on to great success and that's the 13th chair Mm -hmm. and that was done at Studio 58 and it was like an old dusty melodrama from the late 1800s it had a good cast size Um, you know so so Catherine had kind of had it I think in her desk for years. This mm. is Catherine Shaw who runs the program because it meets lots of requirements for her uh, in terms of her lots of young uh, characters, a nice big cast, some humor. Um, and it was a murder mystery. Mm. But overall, dull. Mm. And that was one of those projects where I was like, oh, can I do this play? Mm. And I love Studio 58 and I admire Catherine so much. I'm so honored to be asked. I thought, I I have to do this. I want to work with this company. All the designers, amazing designers, cream of the crop, each one, when I had my first meeting with them, said, I hate this play. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. What are you going to do? I can't stand it. It's dreadfully dull. What are we going to do? And... I turned that into a musical. I set it in the 20s, in the 1920s. I was watching Boardwalk Empire at the time mm, right. and was greatly affected by the music mm-hmm. and the, the choice of music uh, in that series. And so it inspired me to work in that era, first mm-hmm. of all, and, and so move it up from the 1890s and place it in 1920. It also allowed Mara Gottler to do gorgeous vintage period costumes. Mm. And that piece became 
a great success and one of my favorite pieces. And all the actors at, at the end of it went, this is my favorite project I've ever done at studio. And when I read the play, <laughs> they all thought, this is going to be so boring. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's uh, the 20s is a great time to put it into musically too. At that time period, so great. Just before the the depression, exactly. Cool music, jazz was just becoming a, a thing. You know, really sort of main stage. So that's really cool. Matt Grinke played live oh, piano yeah, right. for us, that's and then great. at that point, he was literally Joel Grinke, the actor that had graduated studio. It was his like kid brother who I'd heard was just this really great piano player. Cool. And so we brought him in, Love it. and uh, of course, he works all the time now. And he is a real genius uh, totally. pianist. So we had a great That's time. Great. But, you know, my thought really about all of this is music. What music can do to a show? What mm. music can do to the written text? And how it can lift a piece? Do you tend to use the same amount of rehearsal time for a play or a musical? Or do you find they're different? I mean, what would you think well, your gosh, ideal time? Gosh, yeah. you know. <laughs> would you like well, less time? Now, which theater company am I working for? <laughs> <laughs> right. How many days do I have? Um, well, if I had my druthers, right. if it was up to me, I would like a lot more time for a musical. Sure. A lot more time. Um, basically, we do three-week rehearsals, right, almost for everything in mm -hmm. professional theater. And that's if it is a two-hander Six character play, uh, forty-two, you know, cast of musical, mm. which is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, um, and we do it right, Chris. Right, we do. do. <laughs> right? It's Maybe about that's the problem. it's about three weeks. Mm. You know, it's very European, mm. and I we always say that. I mean, I've been saying that for years. So I I think it still is. I mean, who knows if it's all like cut back and changed across the world. But as far as rumors go, in Europe, they will rehearse a piece for like six months. Mm. And it affects everything because design-wise as well, we have to make all our decisions about design before we get into rehearsal. So mm. as you know, I meet with my designers sometimes a year in advance. Mm -hmm. And we're um, continuing to meet and hone in and, you know, uh, get this design completely ready uh, for before we even rehearse. Sometimes they're right. in the shop building it before we've actually even started rehearsals. So you do have to know what you're doing artistically you, way ahead. You have to know way ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's great. But it allows no room for error. Mm -hmm. it, it allows no room for any major design changes. So yes, of course, there can be adjustments. Mm -hmm. But I think what's so fabulous about Europe is they actually get in and take the time to work with the actors and rehearse and refine the design. And if they decide after two weeks, oh, this design doesn't work, they can toss it out and completely do a, a different design. Right. Because obviously actors can bring something new to a piece when you're in oh. rehearsal and you go, oh, wait, that's a much better idea. Oh, or, absolutely. And yeah. in terms of costumes, you're so right. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, this year with West Side, because we had more time, mm -hmm. I actually included the actors um, in the design for costumes, right. which I would lo love to do. I know as an actor for myself, um, it's happened to me before where I've spent time prepping and doing my homework and I have a strong sense of what I think this character is and who they are. And then I come to the first day of rehearsal and often at the first day, 
it's the first time that you're getting a glimpse as an actor into the director and designer's idea for the character. Right. And um, sometimes it can be wildly different. And who are you <laughs> as a young actor to, to, say, to um, say to this great designer? Yeah. You know, I was thinking. I was thinking that I would be in a big fat suit, and I'm. <laughs> Done a lot of research on fat suits. That's right. um, how do you like actors to be in the rehearsal room? Like, how do you like attentive? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and in sort of more the way, like, do you? Are there some no no things that like you should, people should not do? Don't. Cut your hair without oh talking to the actor, <laughs> talking to the director and the designer first. Um, you know that's one of my pet peeves. Yes, and uh, it's amazing how often that happens. It is, um, but you can't change your look. Don't change your look okay. uh, until you. You know, often you've been cast. You've come to an audition, mm-hmm. and we love you. We love the way you look. Um, but yes, cutting hair. Um, right. You know, I love. Oh my goodness. I just love smart actors. Mm-hmm. I love open actors. I love, and when I say open, I mean, they're open to play. They're open to ideas. They're not fixed. Right. Um, in, in, uh, and rigid in their thoughts about the character. Um, I love, I do love, uh, as, as you know, I love to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So I'm not frightened, uh, by an actor who asks lots of questions uh, or even challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mind that. Um, I'm really excited to talk in the rehearsal room and discuss. And as you know, uh, you know, I always feel like 10 smart brains in the room are better than one. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so bring out the smarts and, uh, and challenge me and question and ask and offer, 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 offer. offer. So you like offers. Yeah. I love mm. offers. I love mm-hmm. um, people that come in with ideas. And I always felt as an actor that I would try uh, to bring in three new things a week, mm. you know, three new things a week, whether that's a bit of shtick, uh, a lotsy, uh, a new uh, approach to a scene, um, yeah. a new idea for a moment, that kind of thing, right? Mm. Business. So, you know, don't ever stop with making new offers. Uh, it's so great to, as a director then, to edit. Like how wonderful to have all these great offers. Mm. And then it's my job to to edit mm. and go, okay, this is not supporting the story. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely bit, but it's not, it's not helping move the story along or it's going against the story and those kinds of things. That's great. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about keeping your aesthetic and your vision through rehearsals and working with a production team? So obviously in a play, you're a little bit more on an island as a <laughs> yes. director. Yes. In a yes. musical, you, you have choreography, you have music director. Mm-hmm. Do you find any challenges or you find certain things easy about keeping your aesthetic? I, I, what I mean by that, and for people that don't know, mm-hmm. um, I, Sarah Rogers has a beautiful minimal aesthetic when it comes to a lot of set design with uh, acting. With We talked about it at the beginning too, about sort of lean and mm-hmm. um, all those things. How do you find challenge in keeping that through rehearsals with a team of people? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I think that the key is to lay all that down early on, and it's always communication. Mm-hmm. Also, what happens, of course, as time goes on, um, that's so funny because when I was a young actor, I used to think, oh, you know, Morris Panitch and Ken McDonald are such a great team, um, but they always work together, like they're partners, and they also always, you know, he always has Ken design his shows. Well, 
you, you think, oh, how lovely wouldn't it be for other designers to be able to get to work with the great Morris Panitch, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so they're not getting those opportunities. Well, now I know because as a director, once you find the designer that has your aesthetic, that gets it, that understands you, and not only that, enhances you and your vision, you don't want to have anybody else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I can say that uh, Kevin McAllister mm -hmm. um, was really uh, instrumental in my early days of directing in terms of uh, economical designs and transformative sets, which is also something that I love greatly. And it was hard to work with anybody beyond that because all I wanted to do is, is work with Kevin. Uh, lucky for me, Drew Facey is an absolutely mm. stunning designer, mm. uh, as well as Brian Ball, mm -hmm. too, uh, who's just done some beautiful work mm -hmm. for us. And what's, and, and what's really interesting about Brian, and I wonder what he would think, but my sense is that Brian isn't necessarily an economical uh, designer. He's a painter. Yeah, a beautiful a painter. So he's an yeah. artist. So he's a real artist. So his sets and designs uh, often, of course, uh, involve uh, drops and um, uh, flats that are painted. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I th that's where I feel like we've done some stunning work together uh, because I'm bringing in a little bit of a more edited and... Um, I'm asking him to edit his work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm kind of challenging him on that respect. And then he's challenging my aesthetic with paint, mm. uh, with painting and bringing in some beautiful, beautiful looks as well. So that's been a really happy marriage. Um, I definitely, it hasn't always been smooth. Mm -hmm. I did a play years ago, St. Joan, mm -hmm. Bernard Shaw uh, for Shemanus. And... It was a Russian designer, and I will tell you, I have literally forgotten his name. <laughs> it's gone. I think I've erased it, and I'm sure he's forgotten mine. <laughs> or, you know, spits after he says my name. <laughs> Swears and spits. <laughs> because it was one of those amazing – it didn't matter how often we met. We met so often, and I kept describing what I wanted, I wanted this wall, a stone wall, very plain, very plain stone wall. And then pieces would come out of the wall that would become furniture in the room. Mm. And then it would leave a hole in the background that would create a window, for mm. example. So if I wanted to pull out a table, it would come out of the wall, it would go down, and then it would open up and it would mm. be like a window, a silhouette of a window. So cool. um, what if... One day I will do this design because it's really cool and I think it'll look really amazing. And uh, for Joan, for that era, I j that's what I wanted to. Mm. Right? I just wanted this like really simple stone wall. Well, I just kept getting kind of a fairy tale wall. It was so colorful. It was really cute. It was something that you would that I would feel would come in like a TYA show for uh, the Princess and the Pea or something, you yeah. know? TYA Joan. Um, yeah. yeah, TYA Joan. <laughs> and she doesn't, uh, you know, mm. get burned at the stake at the end. No, no. Because uh, it was far too jolly and cheerful. Um, and it just... And I'm sure that this this dear fellow would say that, you know, I he did what I asked, you know? It was just one of those strange communication things. Mm. Um and I had to do one of the hardest things I've ever done as a director, which is when we got on that set and the wall, and it was so cumbersome, and it was also very cumbersome, mm. 
this is where you need a really, really good technician and mm. designers as well, because, you know, as a director, I can have all these grand ideas and, oh, you're just going to pull these pieces out of the wall. And, but of course they, it was really hard, it was really hard to pull these things out. The oh, actors right. were killing themselves, <laughs> killing themselves. They were like breaking out in a sweat and people were getting it hurt and splinters and injured. And, and oh, I God. just, and I just remember thinking the play looked better in the rehearsal room. Mm. with nothing. Right. I, I just kept thinking that final run in the rehearsal room where we had no set was better than this. Mm. And so I had to sit my entire team down and say, I would like to cut the set. We're going to have no set. We're going to, and thank heavens, we had a raked stage. Mm -hmm. So I said, we will have a raked stage. We will bring the furniture on. We'll use the furniture. It'll just live in the wings. We'll bring it on as needed, but we will cut the wall completely. So it ended up looking like almost uh, in theater history books. And right. you look at the chapter from the 60s, mm -hmm. and there's often like waiting for Godot. And you have a rake stage and then a big psych. Mm -hmm. Right, and there's nothing but no. maybe like a tree. If it was Godot, you'd have this little tree, right? Yes, and lots that's, of shadows, and that's it, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was this crazy ballsy move, mm. and I was certainly, you know, I was I didn't make all what I didn't I want to say, uh, not everybody loved me for it, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was lucky enough to have uh, the majority of the team. And the generosity of the crew uh, and the TD at the time at Shemanus mm -hmm. um, to be very supportive right. and say, yes, this is better. This is better. You wanted to make sure that it's enhancing the show at that point rather than detracting. Exactly. Exactly. Especially with a piece like that, you know, which, you know, has a certain bleakness to it. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> Do you think that you are unusual in the case <laughs> leading question um, <laughs> and because I've worked with many directors also and I know that some of them like to go to their designers with very vague ideas and some like to go with very specific <laughs> ideas and I I'm, know that you're very specific. I'm never vague <laughs> <laughs> I'm never vague do you think you're in, in a, a, unusual in that case like you go in with very specific that's ideas. that's a that's a good question um I think that all I think that all good directors uh, have strong thoughts uh, and clarity mm -hmm. about the piece. I think that you're right that I'm unusual in my approach to conceptualizing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I, that I come in with a strong idea of a piece uh, that is not already inherent right. uh, to it. And so I think that's unique. And certainly be, maybe because of my design aesthetic, that's a great question. I should really ask like Drew and Kevin. Mm. Um, I think sometimes because I have such a strong vision of how I see the piece, I do sometimes come in and, with a show designed. Uh, Alison Green, a uh, phenomenal designer who's going to be designing for me again uh, the arts club for the audience. Um, and I just love her and I love working with her and, uh, you know, she's a real straight shooter mm. and, uh, and she's also an old vet. She's been doing it for years and years and years. And, uh, I had a very strong vision about Pride and Prejudice and how I wanted to do that piece. And I wanted to do it all with easels and I wanted it to 
be all paintings, paintings on easels. And, uh, and that, so that was very different, uh, because she was expecting to do all the rooms and the interiors and, uh, and the architecture. And she's very good at that as well. Luckily and lucky for me, and she's so open, she loved the idea. Mm. Love the idea, and then made even more and more and more offers. Mm. Um, but she was a hoot because every time we had a production meeting or a design meeting with the other designers, she would always say, "Well, Sarah designed it. <laughs> Sarah designed the set. Well, it's Sarah's. It's Sarah designed it, mm-hmm. uh, and that was not true, but uh, so generous of her. Mm. Uh, but it, but it gives me a little insight mm-hmm. that for me, I just had a concept, so I just shared my concept. Right. But you see, for her. It's so specific, mm-hmm. like very specific to, to you know, um, which tra- how I want the transitions to happen and how I want, at, at times, not always, but I had some very specific ideas about wh- when I wanted the easels to go and what I wanted them to do mm-hmm. and how I wanted them to transform. Um, and so maybe that is different mm-hmm. and unique. Uh, the fact that the fact that she would turn around and say, you know, Sarah designed the set. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe there are um, directors who have strong thoughts about the play, but don't have a strong vision about how they want to see the design. I did um, a Child's Christmas in Wales, and that was the first show that I did with Kevin McAllister. And uh, we had a first meeting, and I said, I don't need a set. Uh, I don't want anything. What? I said, no, I, I don't want anything because it's storytelling and it goes interior and exterior. And, uh, you know, and so I actually don't need it. I don't need a set. Um, <laughs> like, like, like I was kind of like saying, you know, go away. Yeah. Like, like, just write me a letter. Just, don't impose anything because I can, I've staged the entire thing in my brain and, uh, I don't want anything that will uh, lock us down, mm. uh, particularly to the interior because it goes out so much. Right. And so he said to me, what is the main image for you in the piece? Mm. You know, if you, if what's the number one thing? And I said, snow, mm. snow, it, it, it comes up again and again and again. And we start in fact with a snowball. They plunge their hands into the snowball and pull out whatever they can find. Mr. Prothero is standing in the living room and it starts there. And uh, so he said, all right, what about a snowbank? I said, I love it. I can have a snowbank. I can work with that. (laughs) (laughs) And so he created this beautiful snowbank. That's amazing. What what theater was that? This was Shemanus. And it was my very first... Uh, production there right. and dear Jeremy Tao and again he had come to UBC and he had seen Under Milkwood that I had done and from the strength of that production he literally called me up and said would you like to direct Charles Christmas in Wales and how do you feel about writing an adaptation of it because he said there's only um, one play that I can find out there and um, he wasn't keen on it mm. um, because the piece is only about 20 minutes long. If you were to read mm. A Child's Curses in Wales from beginning to end, it's about a 20-minute piece. And he wanted a two-hour play. So my father, Dennis Rogers, and I mm. sat down and uh, with a great deal of help from my daddy, who is um, a, a lovely writer, we pieced together some short stories mm. of Dylan Thomas and so we created more memories. We kind of oh, filled out the memories yeah. uh, of the young boy in Wales, the life of Wales. Great. 
That's, that's amazing. And you made a full two-hour play. That's good. <laughs> Out of a 20-minute piece, that's yes. amazing. Auditions, you know, people coming in and auditioning for you. In a musical, what are you looking for when somebody comes in? I mean, obviously that's character-specific, but are there any other things no. that are general? Yes, and I think you know, Chris, from working from me as well, that I'm always looking for strong actors mm-hmm. first. Then there's the technical things that you have to tick off. And um, so, of course, singing and dancing. And you have to take care to really know the piece well and look at the piece and say, is there an area that we could sacrifice for something else that is more important? Hmm. When, that, when an actor comes in and you don't know them, mm-hmm. like if there's somebody new to you, what it is that stands out to you when somebody comes in that you know that are good? That's a great question. And, oh, I'm really glad you asked this because... Here I am saying that I'm looking for actors first. And uh, inside that, I'm looking for... It's always choices, right, Chris? Right. Uh, so this is... Whether it's a song or whether it's a scene uh, or monologue that they're coming in and doing it, their callback, is I'm looking for inventive choices. I'm mm. looking for freshness. I'm looking for somebody, if it's a comedy, that understands the humor mm. and can bring some wit to it. So for people out there, and I would be one of them, who are not strong singers, who do not feel confident singing, who are scared to death about coming in, uh, especially for first impressions, into Mm -hmm. a room where they don't know people and uh, feel like, I don't have the vocal chops of that woman that just went in before me. And then they have to come in. With me, I say, don't worry. It's the storytelling. It's your acting. As we've talked about earlier, the song is a monologue. It's a soliloquy. And you're still going to make choices as an actor inside that song. And you have an opportunity to show yourself, to show your wit, to show your humor, to show the depth of emotion if you're singing a ballad and it's a serious song. So you can touch us and move us with the honesty of your singing because that takes acting, Mm -hmm. even if you're not hitting all the right notes. And... And Chris, you know, we've cast people. Mm-hmm. We've cast people that have uh, a vulnerability in singing, and then we look after them. We've solved that. We find right. a way to, to, to look after that and help them vocally mm-hmm. so that we can have their wonderful acting chops that they bring to the piece. You try and give, especially in amateur theater or like Tots, for instance, where we don't have all professionals, that you try and approach people that have schooling that have gone to UBC or studio or even, you know, CAP students that you try and incorporate the, a mix of people that have that uh, education. Do you feel that's important? I think it's so important. First of all, I always look at training. I, you know, you want people that are trained. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to have a mix and West Side Story particularly, we had it. Mm-hmm. incredible mix. Uh, we had people from UBC, from Studio 58, from CAP College, from CCPA. Yeah. Um, it was just lovely. And I think it's vital. I mean, that's the real world. That's what it's like as an actor for me mm-hmm. when I work in uh, pr- professional companies. Um, everybody's trained some, you know, uh, across the country. Uh, and, uh, and it's so lovely to bring those different disciplines in mm-hmm. to see people who warm up differently, uh, who have different approaches to the work. And as artists, we learn from that, mm-hmm. uh, in the room. And so it, it's important to me. Oh. I know it's sort of hot button issue, but what are your thoughts about diversity in theater? I think it's a great 
hot button. <laughs> I think it's good. I think it's been a long time coming. And I'm glad to say to actors today who are graduating, the ethnic actors, uh, the actors that can bring diversity to a piece, how wonderful to be able to say, hey, you, you could work a lot. Mm -hmm. There's going to be lots of opportunities for you. For years and years and years, and certainly when I went through UBC, any actor who was of Asian descent, um, they would struggle. Uh, and there were some wonderful actors over the years that I feel came out and then, unless they were able to find a niche in film and TV, they certainly were not going to be able to uh, be on the boards uh, nice. for live theater. And so I'm so thrilled that, you know, finally we're in a world where it's not only about casting Puerto Rican going, okay, I'm going to find, uh, you know, work really hard as you know, we did. Uh, we worked really hard to honor Latinos and f find like authentic, real people of Latin mm -hmm. <laughs> descent mm -hmm. to be on our stage. Um, but it, also what's happening today is blind color casting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's, that's what's taken so long mm -hmm. to, to come. And I love that. And it's great to see. And I uh, worked very hard to do it with Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. at the Arts Club. And, uh, and so we had, you know, my Bennett sisters mm -hmm. were a mix mm -hmm. of Caucasian, Filipino, and African-Canadian. And it was quite shocking, I think, for many patrons mm -hmm. to come to see a uh, it's like a Merchant Ivory film, you know, to come to come and see Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen of that era, and have the Bennett sisters come running on, and we all have such strong, cliche, uh, stereotypical thoughts in our head. Uh, we've also seen so many miniseries right, of, uh, of what those young girls look like. So to suddenly see, um, you know, uh, a Lydia come running out that is African-Canadian and a Mary mm -hmm. that is Filipino, uh, I think was surprising to people. But what I love is that the, the acting is great and beautiful. Everybody just then accepts it. And, and to me, the bottom line always is that you have to win the role because you're the best for it, because you're the best actor for it. So that's all I care about. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I cared about with Pride and Prejudice. It just was like, bring in these talented actors that I know and who, whoever read the best are the ones that, that won the role. What's next for you? I know that you're doing the audience, but what what else is happening for you? I'm squeezing in a show before the oh, audience. You are. <laughs> of course. What do you do? And I'm going up to Whitehorse. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm actually directing It's a Wonderful Life radio play. Yeah. And I did it a couple of years ago for Pacific Theater. So I'm doing that uh, for the month of November. Great. And then I'll be home to have a little time, family time for December okay. and prep for the audience, which starts in January for the new year. Right. So you actually start rehearsals uh, beginning of January. That's right. For the audience. That's That's right. Just, well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So. It's my pleasure, Chris. Lovely. Out. It was just a joy to talk to you and yeah, be here thanks. today. Thanks.